Okay, all right. I think that should be good to go. Another glitch. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not afraid of glitches anyway. The truth is, glitches have always happened. People just don't know at what stage do they come in. Okay? We do a lot of things behind the scenes to try and avoid these things from happening, but unfortunately they do happen. But I think that should be good for now. Again, good morning, one and all. We are in Romans 8, verse 26 to 27, and we'll go there and read. The Lord says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We do have one title to this message, and it is the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. We are back in Romans after our communion message from Isaiah last week. The message about God's suffering servant, whom we identified as the Lord Jesus. And we learned of his work and his rejection and accomplishments. And we tied the end of our message to the experience of mountain climbers on Mount Everest. And we have had a number of plays of that message. And I have since gotten more nuggets on the matter that I hope to get back to in a different message that I will title the gospel according to Mount Everest. <laughs> But for now, we'll go to the teaching of the book of Romans, in particular, the work of the Holy Spirit, because that's going to be our larger context, larger subject. If you have been around the church world, you will know that this is one of the areas that has caused many to sink in falsehood, and the reason being, they have not understood the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. They have not been able to interpret the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And that because they do not know the gospel. And they do not know the gospel because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They are related. And not having the Holy Spirit does not stop men and women from being religious. Religion runs in the DNA of all men, but true religion runs in the DNA of those who are born of God and those who are taught of Him. And many churches think the Holy Spirit is the gospel. They think 
in some sectors, tongue speaking is the definitive evidence of salvation. And not only that, they have been deceived to think that the work of the Holy Spirit is to give people extraordinary powers so that they can overcome the challenges of life to make them successful, anointing, being applied in areas where there's no need of it in the context of the gospel, and success being measured however they want to measure it. And others also teach that the work of the Holy Spirit is to create a new righteousness in the redeemed, which they call a personal righteousness to make men and women more holy. And if you just listen carefully to the probings or proddings of the Holy Spirit and add a little bit of your elbow grease, you could even perfect yourself into sinless perfectionism. Just with a little bit of effort, just be listening to what the Holy Spirit is saying, you can make it into sinless perfectionism. These are things that are found in the professing church. Others ascribe the Holy Spirit to as many imaginations as they can imagine in their vain mind. But the Bible is not silent about the person and work of the Holy Spirit, who he is and what he was given to do. The Holy Spirit is God. He is not an it. He is not an electromagnetic force like electricity, as you hear from the modernists like T.D. Jakes and company. He is God. And he is called the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ. And being God means he has something to do in the salvation of God's people. The Holy Spirit does have a work and a ministry and testimony to bring to his people and will hear what God has to say about him. But before we go there, we need to understand what God has said has already happened. Because salvation is in what God says has already happened. A work completed. A work that is centered on the past tense. A matter of a historical record. The gospel is a declaration of an event that happened in history. It happened in the past. And that's the central message. And what has happened is that God has already justified all his people in the one person, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of that justification, he says there is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ. And the reason being, Christ Jesus met God's righteous requirement of the law for them at the time of his appearance and death. That's what he came to do, to meet the righteous requirement for all his people. And God's righteous requirement of the law was its fulfillment through the perfect obedience of Christ unto death, the shedding of blood. So the death of Christ was the culmination of that fulfillment because without death, there's no remission of sin. There's no cancellation of sin. And that death happened on Mount Calvary. And that means the cross was the place of the transaction of our justification. As I have remarked before, the cross was both a courtroom and prison. And the Lord was found guilty. I cannot change now. The, yeah, I don't think I can cut it now. It's going to have to be audio. The Lord was found guilty by reason of imputation of our sin and thus was sentenced to death. Crucify him was not the pronouncement by the sinful Jews, though it may appear so to someone who is not thinking gospel as these people were saying the things that they were saying. It was not they who were talking. It was God making a pronouncement on Christ. Crucify him was not the judgment of men. Christ was not sentenced to death by men. He was sentenced to death by God. The thief who was saved was set free of his condemnation, justified from the prison of his sin, and that would imply by the declaration of the judge. You cannot get out of prison without the judge making a pronouncement. And the judge is he who was right there crucified in between them. And yet the condemned thief remained in his prison. The Christ must be crucified for there to be salvation. But in his death was also the locking of the doors for the condemned. And for the time that he was on the cross, he was as if in jail as Joseph had been put in the dungeon for the likes of Miss Potiphar, making payment for our sin debt, taking the punishment on and in himself and making satisfaction of it. And it is this satisfaction that Christ rendered by his blood satisfaction of sin and law, that satisfaction, that payment, that God imputed to all the elect as righteousness. So what is in your account right now is 
a sin debt that was satisfied and a law that was fulfilled and given everything that it may have demanded of you. So this satisfaction is God's righteousness because it is in accordance with the demands and standards of what God required and who he is, and also because it is God who did it. It is God's righteousness because it was the work of God. And those for whom Christ died are they who are called those who walk according to the Spirit as opposed to those who walk according to the flesh. And the distinction, as we have noted, is not being of morality, but of faith and of a mind as to the matter of law and Christ. Where do you stand in the matter of law and Christ? That's the distinction. And the distinction also being of condemnation versus non-condemnation. Those who walk according to the flesh are they who still ignorant, ignorantly but zealously labor under the law for righteousness. They are laboring under the law to create a relationship with God, to create a standing for themselves with God. Whilst those who walk according to the Spirit are they who order themselves after God's testimony of Christ Jesus as the only way of their acceptance which is their justification. That's the distinction. But emphasis has to be made if we should remain in the truth of God that being made righteous is a matter that is external to us and our experience. But in the unfolding of this matter of our salvation, this is what God did. He tied the condition of the natural creation to the sin of the first Adam so that it also entered into the corruption of sin and death of decay and condemnation as did Adam and his posterity. So God tied the creation to Adam, the first Adam. So what has happened is that this creation also labors and groans in birth pangs waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. In other words, the natural creation's redemption has been tied to the new creation in Christ and the redemption of the bodies of those that God redeemed. So that's what is happening here. God is determined to work the matter of history and redemption in the two persons. The sin, death, decay, corruption is tied to the first Adam. The redemption of that creation is tied to the salvation in the second Adam. That's what Paul is arguing. So the redeemed are alive to God. 
because of righteousness. Because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. And it follows then that anyone who does not possess the righteousness of Christ is not alive to God because they are under God's condemnation. Let me say this again. All the elect have been made alive to God in Christ. Whether they know it or not, it is not about them knowing about it that causes anything. Their knowing of this truth is not what translates them from condemnation to justification. It is only a confirmation that this has happened for them also. Christ is he who died for them and God accepted his payment. And that brings us to the work of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8, verse 11. Paul begins now to introduce the Holy Spirit to us. And this is what he says, and this is post-justification. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit was given to indwell the saved as a seal, also as a guarantee of their future resurrection. The resurrection to life. Because not all will be resurrected to the life of Christ, but a life of judgment of their sin. All shall be resurrected, but the resurrections are not the same. Some are resurrected to life in Christ, others to a resurrection of condemnation. But when the Holy Spirit is given, he quickens, that is, he makes spiritually alive of the number of the elect who were dead in trespasses and sins. He comes as of first order to give faith and dependence to Christ. In other words, he comes to give the knowledge of Christ, who he is and what he has done and who they are, that is the saints, who they are and how they must understand themselves as relating to their standing before God. In other words, how God sees and thinks about them in light of what Christ has done. Especially knowing that they are counted among sinners as to the matter of righteousness according to the flesh. So the Holy Spirit is given to bring this knowledge of who Christ is and what he has done and also how we now relate to God because of him. Romans 8, verse 14. Point number two about the Holy Spirit. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Those who are indwelt and consequently 
are led by the Spirit of God. These are the sons of God. And that means the Holy Spirit is given to give identity to those who are the redeemed. He confirms their title as those who are the sons of God. And this sonship is not just saying all men and women who ever lived or were created possess this spirit or the title of sonship. Because people will say, oh, we are all the sons of God, we are all the children of God. God says, no, it's only those who have the Holy Spirit who are sons. Only those who walk according to the spirit testimony of the gospel are they who have been given sonship through the adoption that is in Christ Jesus. But then with the sonship, we have to make a distinction. We are not natural sons. We are adopted sons. So God labors that point also in the New Testament that we are adopted sons. And that distinction is important. The adopted sons need redemption. The natural son does not need redemption. So Christ alone was and is the natural son of God. But we owe our sonship to an adoption process that began in election by grace and then was signed by the blood of the cross and confirmed by the spirit of adoption with the Holy Spirit and will be finalized in the resurrection. But the title of sonship is communicating to us that we have been given the legal right to an eternal inheritance in Christ. Because only those who have this title have the rights of inheritance. And in the background to this conversation is what the law does not make you or what the law makes you. The law does not make sons. The law does not make sons. It makes slaves Servants, like Ishmael. And this is a point that the Lord Jesus made when he was speaking to the Jews, if they understood it. When he said this to them in John 8, John 8, 35 and 36. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. Jesus was saying to them, you are slaves to sin and to the law. If you remain under the law, you are a slave and shall be cast out. You do not 
remain forever in the Father's house. But one who has been set free by the Son takes on the legal identity of the Son. They enter into the freedom and inheritance of the Son. Because like Isaac, they are the children of promise, born of the Spirit, born of Sarah. So you see, this is not really, when we make the distinction between law and grace, it's not that we are against the law. We are arguing the points that God has given to say this is how this thing was set up. You cannot be made into a son of God by law obedience. So forget Moses for that reason. He cannot help you. You are those as Isaac, children born of the Spirit, children of promise, children of grace. And so in Galatians 4, 30 and 31, Paul says, quoting from Genesis, cast out the bond woman and her son. The bond woman is Hagar. It is Mount Sinai. It is the law. It is Moses. That's the bond woman. And the son are those who were born of the law, those who are under the law. And why cast them out? For the son of the bond woman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bond woman, but of the free woman. This is a very clear distinction between law and grace. We are children of Sarah. We are children of the free. And someone will say, oh, that's an antinomian idea. Well, call me antinomian for that reason, and I'll be very glad. <laughs> so this is what people are not understanding, Paul, when you argue with them on Facebook. They think, oh, this antinomian guy. No. They're not understanding the arguments that are being made by God himself. Now, to Romans 8.15, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of freedom. Romans 8.15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And that's the distinction between sons and slaves in this matter. The redeemed are given the Holy Spirit as the spirit of freedom. He does not minister bondage to the redeemed, but freedom. He shows them the doors to freedom. The law ministers fear and bondage. That's the distinction. Fear because of continually slipping and sliding and bondage in trying to better yourself next time, but never getting better anyway. It's bondage because you're working so hard to dig yourself out of the ditch that is so slippery you have no traction, you cannot get out. So you're getting afraid that you're going to die in that ditch <laughs> and become more frantic to no avail. So that is the distinction. And this Holy Spirit is also called the spirit of adoption because he indwells all those who were given title as sons by God's election and redemption in Christ.
he is made like a mother to them to nurse, to feed, grow, and prepare the bride of Christ for Christ. Sean loved this from the book of Esther, the room of preparation where if anybody were to go, the women to go see the king, they were to be beautified before they could make their way. So the Holy Spirit is given to beautify us with the knowledge of Christ, to adorn us as it were, that we may be ready to meet with the king. And the Holy Spirit creates and enables the testimony that was non-existent in the person before. He causes them to have a familiar relationship with God as to call him Father. And that's saying, God is okay with that description in relationship. He does not frown upon us calling him our Father. He walked comes us to himself to approach him without fear of rebuke, of judgment, of rejection. And God did not say we are adults. He said we are children. And that's for a purpose. Because we are children in every way to him. As Jesus said, as to such belong the kingdom of God. He wants us to look and glean some understanding at that relationship that we have with little children. How we are accepting of their shortcomings, of their ignorance, how readily we forgive them and care for them, defend them. And this just as a picture, because God is greater, he does better. So this is very important on his part to say, you are children. Don't think yourself adults. Yet, you are not. So I treat you as little children. We have six children here, and I'll tell you this to be true. They get away with things that other people cannot get away with. Because of that very title, children. I'll yell at them one second, and two seconds later, we've met up again. But with God, it is even better because he has reconciled himself to us forever. He's not changing his mind about this matter. Number four, the Holy Spirit testifies of our adoption and heirship. Romans 8, 16 to 17. The Holy Spirit testifies of our adoption and heirship. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. 
and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. The Holy Spirit is he who gives conviction to our spirit that we are the children of God and not the children of wrath as the rest. He says we are not appointed to wrath, but to life. And if children, he also communicates to us that we have an inheritance with Christ and in Christ. And that means the Holy Spirit must bring knowledge of Christ and what God means by him. Yet many of those who claim to know the Holy Spirit are ignorant of the matters of Christ. And yet they claim to speak in tongues, they claim to have the Holy Spirit. So be careful of that testimony of speaking in tongues because many spirits have gone out into the world and we must test them by what they are saying about Jesus. But Paul says having the Holy Spirit does not remove the burden of this life. Does not remove the burden of suffering. Does not remove our dealings with the matters of this existence. And so he is given to help us as we are joined to the suffering of Christ. The believer, together with others, constitute the body of Christ. And the body of Christ, the body, the physical body of Jesus, went through suffering on the cross. And God causes us to enter to our level into the experience of that suffering because he joined us to Christ's suffering in our justification. We were together with him as we shall also enter into his glory, glorification for the same reason. So if we have been joined to Christ in his suffering for us, we share a little bit of the suffering also in this life as the body of Christ, as we shall also share in his glory as the body of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Now, to understanding the perspective of the suffering, Romans 8 verse 18, this your thinking, your attitude that you should have when things are not seemingly working. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This understanding is necessary in order to deal with the seemingly endless sufferings of this life. It seems every week I'm learning of another person within my circle who has been diagnosed of cancer. On Friday, I went to the James to see Sister Kim. Uh, Ella and I went there. And she's getting some chemo. She has stage four cancer. It's gone through the bones and everything. And 
they're gonna give her 18 rounds of chemo. I don't think she'll make it through the 18, that's too much chemical warfare. But even just the one or two does a lot of damage to the body. It just challenges the body. Even if you were healthy, you could not go through 18 rounds. That's a lot of beating. So we talked gospel. I reminded her of the truth of the gospel. And I said, even if this were happening when you were 990 years old, the result will still be the same. You still need Christ. You still need the hope that is in the gospel. So pay attention to that. That's what you need to be reminded of. Endless sufferings of this life. But Paul says, weigh these sufferings in relation to the future glory to be revealed. They pale in comparison, and for that reason, soldier on, be courageous. Because your story ends beautifully, it ends well. But you're not alone in this suffering. You're not alone in this suffering. Even the creation is also suffering. It is groaning and laboring. But how is that? What happened and who caused all this to happen? Did the creation do it to itself? Did the devil do it? Did man cause it? Ultimately, no. Romans 8.20 For the creation was subjected to fertility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The creation was subjected to futility, to vanity, to purposelessness, unwillingly, by God himself. So it's not that someone behaved badly (laughs) and brought it upon themselves. This is what God wanted to happen. So this rubbish is the whole idea of human free will. And this protection of God saying, oh, God is not the cause of sin and evil. But he says, he is the one who brought corruption to his creation. The creature cannot have a free will or a will that is free Because God is always pulling them behind the scenes. God is always having us to do his bidding. Whether we know it or not, it doesn't matter. So it is God who brought about the corruption that is in his creation. A matter that drives a lot of people insane, especially those who have not been taught of God. But that was not the end of it. He did it with a bigger end in mind. He was going somewhere with it. He had a purpose in bringing sin and corruption in his creation. So this was not done by some bad actor, some bad neighbor next door. It wasn't done by some border jumpers who came into the Garden of Eden and messed up his otherwise good creation when God was apparently taking a siesta. 
it pleased him to do it. And so he brought it to pass. And it was not sinful or evil on his part to bring corruption. <laughs> it was not sinful. After all, it is his creation to do as he pleases. And he made it good for his purpose. Paul and Kathleen have been packing to get ready on their trip, on their journey. They're not carrying everything. Some things they're like, ah, we're not carrying this. We're going to have to go to the dumpster. Doesn't matter how nice some of the things are according to someone's eyes. They don't want it. It's not sinful for them to do it. <laughs> Why? Because they have every right to do whatever they want with what is theirs. That's exactly what God did. He has every right to do whatever he wants to do with his own creation, and it is not sinful. But when he did this, he had a purpose. In other words, there is a why to what happened to God's creation. There is a why to sin. You see, people don't want to talk about the why of sin. That is why they stumble. They stumble because they don't go beyond the sin to the glory that came because of it. The vanity of his creation was a necessary step or ingredient of what he was to later reveal that is his glory in Christ. He subjected his creation to vanity, but without the intention of making this the permanent state of affairs for the creation and for his people. This was done in hope. This was done in hope. The hope of bringing all things to himself. Reconciling all these things to himself through Christ. Remaking everything through Christ. Through the second creation of the cross. Was in the matter of history, these are the timelines that are important. The appearance of Adam and the sin and corruption that came by him and the appearance of Christ and the life and righteousness that came by him. Those are the only important timelines of history. So the coming of Christ is what divides the old history, the old creation from the new creation. And so this was the hope, Romans 8.21, that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See the language of its slavery to corruption. The creation is bound by corruption as a power. And it is God's power in action. Sin has no power apart from God. Nothing has power apart from God. Nothing has power apart from him. He alone is the possessor of all power. 
That is why he is the almighty God. He possesses all the power. But the creation shall be set free by him who first subjected it to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And then no more corruption, no more decay, no more poison ivy in my context. <laughs> no more poison ivy in the new creation. And no more dangers either. Don't have to worry about losing your teeth. No earthquakes, no hurricanes, no tornadoes. No more labors, no more groans, no more pain, no more tears. So you're going to find a lot of that language in the book of Revelation, which was prophesied in the book of Isaiah. The creation has been restored. The creation suffers and groans as if in childbirth, but it does not end there. Romans 8.23 And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We ourselves, even though possessing the Holy Spirit, grown in ourselves, waiting expectantly, eagerly, with exceeding hope, of our adoption as sons and this adoption looking to the final redemption of this body. This body needs redemption from its corruption and weakness and it shall be redeemed in the resurrection. So those who say the resurrection has already happened are surely dead wrong and they're taking away one of the fundamental promises of the gospel. The preterists, if you have heard of them, they're there on Facebook and they also be sovereign grace people. But they say, oh, the resurrection already happened in 70 AD when Jesus came, apparently destroyed the temple. So Jesus has already come. But that hope is in vain because if there's no resurrection, then there's no final adoption. So Jesus has not yet come back. Because all these things will be consummated when he comes back and when the dead in the graves hear the voice of the Son of Man, then the resurrection comes, as he said in the book of John. But we hope for what we know but do not see, and it seems verse 26 of Romans implies that our perseverance in that waiting period is enabled and powered not just by our knowledge of it, but also by the Spirit in us. Hence, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Holy Spirit also, also implies he has done or is doing some other work prior to that, or together with that, or in addition to this. The Holy Spirit also helps our weakness, as he also 
helps in our perseverance, in suffering, and in faith. Because suffering left to ourselves would cause us to not continue in faith. So the Holy Spirit sustains our faith through suffering. So we are not left to our own devices. We are not left to our knowledge. We are not left to our strength to soldier through the sufferings. We need some help. We need to help. We need some help. But we also need some help to see something here that we may overlook in our reading. Verse 26 does not say the Holy Spirit helps us in weaknesses. But our weakness. Pay attention to that distinction. There's a big difference. The Greek does not have the us in as in suggesting helping occasionally as life things happen to us. In other words, the Holy Spirit does not help Sister Kelly today and then takes a break tomorrow into Wednesday and then waits for some other life event to happen, then he comes and helps again. No. Let's define some things. you get the point. The Holy Spirit is saying, our weakness is a permanent state of being. Not necessarily of experience to temptation or sickness or, no, just as we exist, we exist in a state of weakness. Whether anything happens to Kathleen or not, it doesn't matter. She exists in a state of weakness. Whether she's going through anything or not, it doesn't matter. She exists by default in a state of weakness. We are weak by reason of still not having been redeemed in body. By reason of still carrying this sinful flesh. So our state is that of weakness. And because of that, the Holy Spirit continually helps us. And that is why you can't say, I am doing better and better. No, you are not doing better and better because you are in a constant state of weakness. And that is why you need a constant help from the Holy Spirit. So, even when we think we are doing better, it is not us doing better, it is God working behind the scenes. So the Spirit helps, that is present continuous tense, to say He keeps on helping. He does not change down the gears or put the car in neutral. No, he is always engaged to help your weakness. 
the Greek word translated as weakness is used for a number of things, among which are physical, emotional, or spiritual disability. That's how the word was used. Physical, emotional, spiritual disability, which we all have to different degrees. And in this case, that weakness is evidenced by the inward groanings. You're always groaning. Your belly is groaning when it's hungry. All kinds of issues. Every day you're dealing with one little thing and another. You wake up, your headache. Like, man, dehydration or what? what? You always have some issues to deal with. So the weakness is evidenced by the internal struggles. Emotional, physical, spiritual. You can say even biological. And the word translated helps is not just helping someone, but implies helping someone who has a heavy burden. You and I have a heavy burden because of the weakness of the flesh. And this word was also used here with Martha and Mary in Luke 10, verse 14. Luke 10, But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do, to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Tell her to help me lift all these burdens on me because of the preparations. I have all these people to feed and I'm doing everything by myself. I'm fetching the water. I'm doing the dishes. I'm cutting the onions and you name it. I'm doing it by myself. So tell my sister to come help me lift this burdens. That's the same word. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. So what is one of the apparent pieces of evidence of their weakness? Paul says it is that they do not know how to pray as they should. Literally, it says, what we should pray as is necessary. What we should pray as is necessary. Because people are praying, but it is not as is necessary. In other words, there are things that are necessary that are useful to speak to God about. But it eludes people due to their weakness. So both the content of the prayer is messed up as to the manner of doing it. The content and the manner is messed up. People just be talking all kinds of foolish things to God for lack of proper content. And because of that, people coming and saying, 
Or God will hear you if you pray at three in the morning. He hears you better at three than at five in the morning. Or you should pray like this one lady who once came. She came to one of our services way back. She said, well, where is the East? I'm like, what do you need to know where the East is from here? Because she wanted to pray. <laughs> Look into the East. Thinking that God would hear her more or better because of that manner of praying. So we should keep a compass here just in case. That's weakness. It's people being ignorant. The Lord Jesus had some things to say about this matter in Matthew 6, 5 to 7. Matthew 6, 5 to 7. He said, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Should I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition. Vain babbling, as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words or for their much speaking. Jesus is saying, make your words be few. Don't make a show of it either. So what does the Holy Spirit do? He comes in to help lift the burden of our weakness of our spiritual sickness, our lack of proper content to bring to God. We have a content problem. There are a lot of content creators now on social media, but that's not the content that God accepts. He comes to rescue, to clean up our speech. He intercedes he keeps interceding for us as we continue in our present weakness. And he rescues us with groans that words cannot express. Silent groans, groans too deep for words or for Google translation. Google cannot translate. In other words, his vocabulary in intercession cannot be captured in human words. But that does not mean that it is noisy. Does not mean that it is gibberish. It does not mean that it is audible to us. And it does not mean that he is speaking in tongues either. This is a God-to-God -God communication. And many have hijacked this to say, this is tongue-speaking. This is the special language that they use when they're tongue-speaking. No, this is communication of the Spirit to God on behalf of the person, on behalf of the church, 
in ways that they are not even aware of. The Holy Spirit is constantly engaged in the matter of intercession, even when we are in la-la land. (laughs) So the Lord Jesus prayed many prayers on the cross that were recorded in the gospel. Sorry, that were not recorded in the gospels. The majority of the Lord Jesus' prayers were silent. He did not even move his mouth. For instance, many of the psalms were the prayers of the Lord Jesus on the cross. But none had them with their ears. Go and read the psalms. It's Jesus on the cross praying. But he was there for a long time. He was on the cross from 12 midday. He spent the whole afternoon there. So the natural creation groans in verse 22 of Romans 8. The believer groans in verse 23. And the Holy Spirit also groans. Everybody is in some, dealing with some groaning. The Holy Spirit has his own groaning. And when he groans, it is not the believer groaning. Do you see the distinction? The creation groans. The person, believer groans, and the Holy Spirit groans. So the groaning of the Holy Spirit is not my groaning or your groaning. It is the groaning of the Holy Spirit. But see this. Your sins and ignorance are so great that it takes the Holy Spirit groaning even in conversation to God on your behalf. This is laboring of the Holy Spirit on account of you and me because of our weakness. So the help that the Holy Spirit gives is in his intercession. And this means he approaches or appeals to someone. He appeals to God on our behalf. He does all the appealing on our behalf. Even when you do not pray, the Holy Spirit is always praying. He does. Verse 27. Romans 8, and he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Who is he who searches the hearts? It is God. When God searches the hearts, he is met with the mind of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit in the person. When God comes and searches the heart, what he is met with is the Holy Spirit in the person. God comes and communes with the mind of the Holy Spirit who indwells the person. That's some incredible stuff. Both you may not have had people teach it this way because they're going through too fast. They're not thinking through what is being said. 
This is what it means. When God comes, he is impressed by the Holy Spirit testimony in you and is agreeable with what things the Holy Spirit says about you because the Holy Spirit intercedes in conversation with God for the saints according to the will of God, according to what God wants to hear. And that means even when we pray and our minds cannot concentrate or cannot have clean thoughts, and you know the distraction that always happens to your mind, you're thinking, just as you're starting to pray, you're thinking something totally different. I'm like, man, where did this come from? <laughs> when our minds are distracted, cannot have clean thoughts, that is not what God comes and deals with. He searches what the Holy Spirit is saying. He is not searching what Sean is saying. Sean may be in a very bad spot that day, dealing with a lot of weakness because of his flesh. When God visits Sean that day, he's not looking to hear Sean's testimony. He's coming to hear the testimony of the Holy Spirit. He searches what the Holy Spirit is saying, and it is all good, and it's all clean, and it is all according to the will of God. So that removes a lot of the burden for us as we pray to God. Because apart from the intercession of the Holy Spirit, it cannot be done. Forget it. God coming to hear, see what Paul is imagining. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not going to hear that. <laughs> like, I have no use for that. <laughs> also, we can never be mature enough to be weaned off from needing this intercession of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to intercede. This is what it also means. Even on the deathbed, when someone is not able to say anything, the Holy Spirit continues to intercede. You don't have to be conscious for the Holy Spirit to intercede. Okay? He ever lives to make intercession. Because of weakness. And being on the deathbed is one of the weaknesses. Evidence of weakness of the flesh. Pay attention again to this point before we leave it. The Holy Spirit groans. But the Father is able to hear. To interpret and understand exactly the mind of the Spirit. What he is thinking and saying without meeting at Panera or Starbucks for a cup of coffee. God doesn't say, oh, let's go to Starbucks and you download to me what's going on with Sean. 
<laughs> See the interaction of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. God is saying his relationship to us is Trinitarian. The Father communes with the believer through the intercession of the Spirit. He gets his daily update, as it were, through the intercession of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit intercedes on behalf of the believer to the Father, and the Lord Jesus also intercedes on behalf of the believer too. Romans 8, 33 and 34. We shall bring a charge against God's elect. God is he who justifies. Who is the one who condemns Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who always intercedes for us, ever lives to make intercession. Hebrews 7.25 Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ ever lives to make intercession for all who draw near to God through him. So the whole matter of intercession is strictly a Trinitarian work. And it is all according, according to God's will. Because if Christ is nothing for you, guess what? Jesus said, Father, I know you always hear me. It means God always accepts what Jesus says. The Holy Spirit intercedes according to God's will. So whatever intercession these do, it's always accepted. And that means none can pray according to God's will without Christ. And without the Holy Spirit, it is impossible. They cannot be heard in that respect. It's not saying God does not hear the physical words, the utterances. It is saying they can never pray according to God's will. But we want to add more testimony of the Holy Spirit in this matter of our salvation. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 to 16. We're going to work our way through that. Paul says, we, Paul says, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. Paul says, the wisdom that he brought and was speaking is for those who are the mature, that is spiritually mature in the knowledge of the truth. Whose spirit has been exercised by the gospel truth, those who are believers. Those who are believers. Those born of God. 
but it is a wisdom, however, not of this age. A wisdom not of the YouTube content creators, not of the rulers of this age who are passing away with that wisdom. Say so their wisdom is not going to remain, they're passing away with it. So there is a lot of content that is passing for wisdom. AI is coming and generating a lot of code wisdom. And people are gobbling it up like ice cream, like free ice cream. But it is passing away and is not profitable, does not make anyone wise according to salvation, according to Christ. Verse 7, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to glory, to our glory. So God's wisdom is spoken in a mystery, hidden as it were, as it is wisdom predestined by him from before the ages, from before the foundation of the world, and this to our glory. God's intention and purpose with everything that he has done, even to the matter of sin and corruption, is captured in that wisdom. So there's God's wisdom in the bringing of sin, God's wisdom in corruption, God's wisdom in the condemnation, and then God's wisdom shown in the redemption of his creation. This all goes wisdom. Whilst men in their wisdom are fixated on the one aspect of things, God's wisdom is all encompassing. Everything is under his hidden wisdom. Verse 8. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And that wisdom, the seemingly highest of men as represented by the rulers of this age, I would take it to mean even the principalities and the powers and dominions have not understood the horde of the fallen spirits, of the evil spirits. They were also involved in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Because if they had understood what was going on, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And it seems to me, this is what he's saying. Jesus and the cross are God's wisdom and judgment. And in being crucified, he was sealing the fate of those rulers and their wisdom in condemnation. They thought they were bringing Jesus to an end, not knowing that he was bringing them to an end. And so Colossians 2.15 says, Disarming the rulers and authorities, he has made a public spectacle of them a public disgrace of them, 
triumphing over them by the cross. So that's how he triumphed over them. But they thought they were putting him out. If they had known that this is how they were going to be defeated, they would not have crucified him. So, but that was God's wisdom. If they understood that this was their condemnation, they would not have participated in the death of Christ. And this would be a negative for them because there is a negative aspect to the matter of the death of Christ because not only did he redeem positively those who are in Christ, but he also logged the condemnation of those who were not his. It was not to their benefit. The death of Christ did not benefit everyone. To others, it was to their detriment. But just as it is written, verse 9, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. So God has not naturally revealed the details of what our inheritance is actually going to look like. The point is naturally a person cannot study their way into this understanding. They cannot just KJV their way into this either. <laughs> but it is going to be more glorious beyond anyone's imagination. God says, trust me, I know things glorious. And when I say eye has not seen or ear had, it's glorious. And now to the matter of that revelation, verse 10, for us, for to us, that is the saved, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the, depth, the, even the depths of God. God's wisdom and the thing, thing that God has prepared for the redeemed, He has revealed through the Spirit. How? The Holy Spirit searches all things. That's point number one. So that's omniscience. He knows everything. Even the depths of God. He knows the things of God as they are all in God. As God the Father knows the mind of the Spirit in the believer. If you go back to Romans, we were told that God searches the Spirit. And now it's going back this way. It's the spirit that searches God. So they're searching each other. Because they know each other and they know the same thing. In other words, God's Holy Spirit is his means of revelation of the hidden wisdom. He is the active revealer of these things. But a person can read the Bible and still not get it. The Holy Spirit is the revealer of these things. So God the Father searches all things. The Holy Spirit also searches all things. Now when you're searching the things of God, you have to be God yourself. Otherwise your search is in vain. You have to be God to search God. Verse 11 for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man who is in him? Exactly my point. It is only yourself who knows your thoughts. Only you who knows 
your thoughts. There's no way to get into someone's brain as to know every detail of their mind. And this here is arguing from the lesser to the greater. I do not, I do not know everything that is happening in Sean's mind. And this at the human level. And now to the greater, he says, even so the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. Absolutely no one. So the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God because only God knows God's mind, which means the Holy Spirit is co-equal in every aspect with God the Father and with God the Son. But how do we know God's mind? Let's go off. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. The believer has received, has been given the Holy Spirit, did not ask for him, but is freely given the Spirit who is from God. But given to do what? So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. That's one of the fundamental responsibilities, job descriptions of the Holy Spirit. So that the redeemed may know. So he's a teacher. The things that have freely been given to us by God. So the Holy Spirit from God is given as the agent of revelation and illumination of things God. Things Christ. So very particular things, things that have been freely given to us. Freely, underline that, freely given to us. In other words, the Holy Spirit testifies of free things from God, and that means salvation in Christ alone, salvation by grace alone. And that is why we have our gospel here. Let's boy, we love free things. The testimony of the Holy Spirit is about Christ and unconditional salvation. That's another way to say it. He testifies of unconditional salvation. And if the message has conditions of things that you must do to be accepted by God, then it is not the Holy Spirit speaking. It is the spirit of the world, as Paul said earlier in this chapter. And so one can tell. Holy Spirit possession by what free things they say are coming from Christ. Does their testimony wholly talk of the free things? Because many beat the drum of grace but do not want to give free things. <laughs> they will talk of moral reformation. They will beat on the imperatives. They condition you getting these free things as some price of your own that you have to pay. You must bring something, your own obedience, that you may partake of these free things. 
which makes it an oxymoron. Because if you're paying for free things, you are not receiving free things. You pay it for them. So, in other words, to connect it different, differently, law is salvation at the price that you pay. Gospel is salvation at a price you didn't pay. That's the distinction. Verse 18. Which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual things or spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. These things are not taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. So it doesn't matter how much Greek or Hebrew you know. If the Holy Spirit is absent, you're not going to get this. Okay? So the Holy Spirit is the teacher of the saved. He has a free class and he testifies of free things. You do not have to bring books and pencils or pay tuition. It is all free at his school. And there's no teacher appreciation day for him. <laughs> it's all free. The Holy Spirit combines, Paul says, spiritual thoughts and words to give understanding to us. He makes, in other words, accessible to us spiritual thoughts of God and makes a step down transformer, as it were, to make them accessible to us as spiritual words and to give us understanding of them. Spiritual thoughts made into spiritual words that we can access. Okay? But spiritual thoughts are coming from God. So we cannot know the thoughts of God unless and until they've been made accessible to us. That's what Paul is saying. Verse 14. But the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The natural man has the spirit of the world. The spirit that is according to man's wisdom, and they dispense man's wisdom, which they think to have or to be wisdom, but in their so-called wisdom, they do not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Their wisdom is contrary to the wisdom of God because they do not accept the things of God. The things of which the Holy Spirit testifies of a foolishness to him who is the natural man. So as I say, the natural man has their own wisdom and they think highly of it, and they are constantly refining it, but that is only as far as they will go. They have no ability to reach for this hidden wisdom. Even when they hear it, they cannot understand it because they do not have the means by which it can be known, revealed, or accepted, which is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in you is he who causes you to accept what God gives. It is not your intellect naturally. It cannot do that. So Paul is saying the gospel is spiritually understood. It is spiritually appraised. So their natural reaction to the truth of God is rejection. 
they can only reject the gospel. And to this they were appointed to by God. Verse 15. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. Yes, even the natural man claims to be spiritual. But God says they are fleshly, they are natural, devoid of the truth. Only the spiritual man, one in God by the Holy Spirit, appraises all things. See, it says all things. Because they have the Spirit of God who searches all things. And yet, he himself is appraised by no one. In other words, when you have the Holy Spirit, you have a very good judgment of things, especially spiritual things. You have a better ear, a better perception of spiritual matters, things that only appear to be natural to the unregenerate mind. This is the ability that God has given you. Verse 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him or that he should instruct him exactly? The person, the spiritual person cannot be appraised by anyone because that person must have the mind of God to do it. But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ you're going to hear a lot of people talk about what is the mind of Christ. If you're following the argument of this chapter, the mind of Christ is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit communicates the mind of Christ. The knowledge of Christ comes by him. He mediates it. He illuminates it. And also, it is him who searches all things. So the mind of Christ has to be able to search all things. And that means it's the Holy Spirit. It is him whom the natural man cannot discern. The natural man cannot discern the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. And this message is not exhaustive of this matter at all. I'm debating on whether to do a part two, but I didn't even go to where I wanted to go. <laughs> but I wanted you to see the progression of things from the cross to where we are now. We are in the age of the work of the Holy Spirit, in the building and calling and governance of the church. And the Holy Spirit has work to do. He has been given to help in our suffering, to help in our weakness, help us in prayer according to God's will, in testifying of our adoption in Christ as children and sons of our inheritance, of interceding for us, as the agent of revelation and teaching of the things of Christ, God's wisdom, of bringing the testimony of the free things from God. And we must understand that too, 
because many things are being ascribed to the Holy Spirit that do not relate to the gospel matters. Things that are not free things and that cannot be good for you. So be able to make judgment of these things. Because people love to say, oh, the Holy Spirit taught me this and the Holy Spirit told me that. The Holy Spirit... And in much of that, you never hear anything about the matter of the gospel. So be wary of those people. Okay? It's about three things. That is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. We are done. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these many wonderful words that have been spoken. We pray for help by the same Spirit in our weakness, in our inability to pray according to God's will. We pray, Lord, for the revelation of Christ in us, the understanding of the free things that we have been given. We thank you, Lord, for our continued growth and learning in this wisdom. And we pray that you keep us as your people and bring us back again to hear from you. We honor you, we glorify you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.